the NRA. You picture them as gun enthusiasts that have gone awry. They have slogans like, take the gun from my cold dead hands. But the NRA originally started as a nonpartisan, non-political organization focused solely on providing training for marksmanship and gun safety. But over the years after infighting and an increase in gun control legislation in the United States, the mission and actions of the group have certainly changed. They have become famous for their controversial opinions and their even more controversial lobbying efforts. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we'll be talking about the history, controversy, and legal battles of the NRA. Given the topic and the NRA's commentary, this episode does contain mentions of mass shootings. I do feel like that's gonna be kind of obvious that we're gonna unfortunately have to talk about them, but just letting you know that that's gonna be in here. So with that being said, let's get right into today's episode. We're millions of average, honest Americans. We're moms and dads who wanna live in safe neighborhoods and send our kids to safe schools. We're Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and none of the above. We're every color, creed, faith, and occupation. We're American from every walk of life, but we're united in our belief in the Second Amendment that keeps our families safe and our country free. In the beginning, the NRA started as a nonpartisan organization with the primary goal of teaching marksmanship and providing training facilities for soldiers. In the midst of the Civil War, two Union officers were in disarray over the shocking discovery that their soldiers couldn't shoot. A study found that Union troops fired an estimated 1,000 rounds for every one that would actually hit a Confederate soldier. And in a time of war, this obviously is not the result you want. So Colonel William C. Church and General George Wingate formed the National Rifle Association to address this troublesome issue in 1871. According to the NRA homepage, the main goal of the organization at the time was to promote and encourage rifle shooting on a scientific basis. The first president of the NRA would be General Ambrose Burnside, a union general, the inventor of sideburns and the former governor of Rhode Island and a US Senator at the time. Before long, the NRA would become renowned for their training practices. They taught people how to safely and properly keep and shoot firearms and the army even donated equipment to them for training. Then in 1872, New York assisted them with purchasing their very first shooting range. The range was located in Long Island and opened one year later. It held its first marksmanship match that very same year. The shooting range would remain in New York for over 20 years, but after New York started to oppose the promotion of marksmanship, the NRA was forced to move its range to New Jersey in 1892. Expanding on their original goal, they began to become interested in teaching marksmanship, not only to adults, but to children and young adults as well. In 1903, NRA Secretary Albert S. Jones, who was a lieutenant in the American military, started to encourage colleges and military academies to start rifle associations. The youth program was in full effect by 1906 and 200 boys competed in marksmanship matches. In the beginning, the group was not very political, but all that began to change in the 1920s and 30s. And even with me saying how it all began to change, this is still incredibly mild in comparison to what we are seeing today. So just. Keep that in mind that they didn't all of a sudden in the 1920s and 30s go completely where they are today. They were still really, really, really mild at this point. The president of the NRA at the time, Carl T. Frederick, testified in Congress on behalf of the organization in the hearings regarding the National Firearms Act of 1934. Shockingly, according to the hearings transcripts, he actually was testifying for at least some gun control laws. According to the transcripts, he said the following. 
I have been giving this subject of firearms regulation study and consideration over a period of 15 years. And the suggestions resulting from that study of mine and the people with whom I have associated, such as the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform Laws, have resulted in the adoption of many states of regulatory provisions suggested by us. And again, suggested by us. If you know anything about the NRA hearing regulations and suggested by us in the same sentence from someone arguing on their behalf, it might be a little shocking. It kind of was to me a little bit, but we'll talk on that a little bit more later and hopefully it'll come around as to why. Now, Frederick would go on to testify and criticize different aspects of the bill, which he says he briefly read it on the train. And first he suggests that the machine gun definition was actually too lenient. He said, a gun which fires automatically or semi-automatically less than 12 shots is not under this definition of a machine gun. And yet, in my opinion, it is in fact a machine gun and goes on to suggest that a machine gun or submachine gun be defined as any firearm by whatever name known, loaded or unloaded, which shoots automatically more than one shot without manual reloading by a single function of the trigger. It is important to mention that as this bill in question was placing a $200 transfer tax on machine guns, which would be over $4,000 today, FYI. Given this, it widely limited who could actually afford to purchase these types of guns at the time. And the president of the NRA was arguing to broaden the definition to include even more weapons, which in comparison to today, extremely different viewpoints. However, Frederick did also testify that multiple aspects of the bill, like $200 licensing fees were harmful and should be changed. He said these would deprive the rural inhabitant, the inhabitant of the small town, the inhabitant of the farm, of any opportunity to secure a weapon. It wasn't so much the license that he took issue with, but the fee, which again, $200 would be practically impossible to afford for farmers or just most people in general in 1934. He goes on in his testimony to discuss the necessity of weapons for self-defense while still encouraging licensure. Near the end of the transcript, Frederick is asked if he opposes gun regulation, which he responded by saying, not at all, I have advocated it. He was then asked if he opposed a federal bill on gun regulation, which he responded by saying, provided the bill will accomplish useful results in the suppression of crime, I am heartily in favor of it. He even goes on to agree with a Congress member that criminals would be the only group who would object to regulations. See, it wasn't the regulation that was the problem for the NRA at the time. It was the taxes associated with regulation that he found an issue with. Despite arguing that guns are effective and necessary for normal situations of self-defense, Frederick also said this during the hearing. I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I seldom carry one. I have when I felt it was desirable to do so for my own protection. I know that applies in most of the instances where guns are used effectively in self-defense or in places of business and in the home. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. Obviously, I don't have time to discuss the entirety of this hearing or the bill, but the general idea is this. The NRA, or at least the president at the time, was not opposed to gun legislation or regulation. Rather, they were just against the high taxes that would make it so virtually no one could own a weapon. But they, or he, supported regulation and licensure, but not all out bans. Once again, Very, very, very different than what we see with the NRA today. However, this aspect of the organization's history is never listed on the NRA's website, which I find interesting. Instead, they actually skip this part of their president helping to write and enact gun legislation and merely say that in response to repeated attacks on the second amendment rights, NRA formed the Legislative Affairs Division in 1934. 
I find that interesting. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Very interesting they would leave this piece of their history out, but I'll go ahead and share it with you. But anyway, during this time, they also developed The American Rifleman, a magazine that kept members up to date on the bills regarding guns at the time. The NRA would continue working with the government on gun legislation through the 50s, always advocating for the use of weapons as protection, but rarely arguing outright against licensure or at least some restrictions, particularly when those restrictions were related to mental health or crime. Again, this part of their history, not mentioned on their website. And this should be a little bit of sneaky foreshadowing and make you think, why wouldn't they want this part of their history on the website? Hmm, we'll get into those current values in just a little bit. They were also extremely involved in working with the military and United States government during World War II. According to their website, the NRA helped to arm Britain in 1940, which they said was necessary because Britain had virtually disarmed itself with a series of gun control laws enacted between World War I and World War II. Additionally, guard members trained at their facilities and they developed training materials for the US government. The group is also responsible for the first ever hunter education program, which they established in New York. Today, this is taught by multiple states, fish and game departments, and also in Canada. So from the beginning until around the 1960s, the NRA was mostly focused on training and safety and also worked with the US government to develop sensible gun legislation. Though I feel it important to note that in 1967, when the Mulford Act was passed, banning open carry of firearms in California, the NRA really only supported the bill because the Black Panthers had been open carrying in the street while protesting police brutality. So just keep that in the back of your mind that that's really the only reason why they went with the ban. Just think about it. But anyway, they still were not really a lobbying group and were virtually nonpartisan. In fact, it wasn't until 1967 that they would support their first presidential hopeful, Ronald Reagan. So what changed here? And how did they become the giant lobbying force that they are today? Before we go on to answer those burning questions and see just the audacity of this organization, let's go ahead and take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. Sometimes in order to go green, you have to get blue. Blue land that is. Blueland was founded on the belief that a cleaner planet starts by eliminating plastic waste while creating powerful, effective cleaners for your entire home. But with Blueland's refill cleaning system, you can reduce your waste and your guilt. With Blueland, you buy the bottle once and refill it forever. Just fill their bottles with water, add a hand soap or spray cleaner tablet, and you quickly have powerful cleaners with great scents like lemon and lavender eucalyptus. And Blueland has something for every aspect of your home, from their best cleaning essentials kit to their hand soap duo, laundry, dishwasher, and toilet tablets. And I recently got a hold of their wool balls for dry cleaning, and oh my God, I love them. I've never had wool balls before to help in the dryer, and it's been wonderful. And right now you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash casket. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products at blueland.com slash casket, blueland.com slash casket. Today's episode is also sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. I love being able to shop online while in my PJs, but I'm terrible at keeping track of promo codes and who has time for that? But now I have Honey to help find those precious money-saving codes for me. Honey is the free shopping tool that searches the internet for promo codes and applies the best ones to your cart. Now, recently I've been reducing how much I've been buying online. I've been really trying to hold back and just kind of keep it local a little bit. I don't know, I'm just trying a new thing for right now. It's a new year's resolution. It's probably gonna fail, but I'm trying anyway. 
But I've used Honey to help purchase furniture for the house when I needed a new rug from a furniture store. It's even helped me buy some supplies for the candle making business and of course clothing. So they're literally everywhere. And now Honey just doesn't work on your desktop alone. It also works on your iPhone. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on amazing savings. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something I don't use. And I've been using Honey for years. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash casket. That's joinhoney.com slash casket. Of America's strength and of America's character. The NRA will not sit idly by as our nation faces such great peril. No politician has the right to tell us that we don't have the right to protect ourselves. We will not be silent. We are freedom's safest place. We are the National Rifle Association. The biggest change within the NRA would come in the 1970s after the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms killed an NRA member who was hiding a large number of illegal weapons. According to NPR, this caused the group to react by starting their first official lobbying section in 1975 called the Institute for Legislative Action. The head of the new lobbying section of the organization, Harlan Carter, would soon cause infighting after they limited his staff. He reacted by organizing what the Washington Post calls the revolt at Cincinnati, where he forcibly took control of the organization. With Carter at the helm, the NRA was given instructions to oppose all forms of gun control across the board. From here, the organization would begin its reign as one of the most powerful lobbying groups in the United States. They started their own PAC, Political Action Committee, and began monetarily supporting legislators they approved of, which if you know anything about American politics, all I gotta say is, you know, follow the money. It's pretty obvious. Their first big victory as a lobbying group would come in 1986. After multiple years of lobbying efforts and $1.4 million of donations, the NRA successfully convinced or helped convince Congress to cut gun restrictions previously put in place in 1968. They had been actively working to get members of Congress who supported the bill voted out over the years, and clearly their plan was working. They made another big move three years later with the development of their nonprofit, the NRA Foundation in 1990. According to their website, they did this to ensure that the financial support for firearms-related activities would be able now and for future generations. They also go on to say that the nonprofit was created to raise millions of dollars to fund gun safety and education projects of benefit to the general public. Contributions to the foundation are tax deductible and benefit a variety of American constituencies, including youth, women, hunters, competitive shooters, gun collectors, law enforcement agents, and persons with physical disabilities. Now, This doesn't seem all that controversial, but just wait, we'll talk about how the NRA allegedly has actually been using this nonprofit. Now back to their involvement in government. Over the years, the NRA would continue to use its lobbying efforts and political connections to impact American federal gun laws. They also became staunchly aligned with the GOP. And for my non-American listeners, that's the Americans Republican Party. Many Republicans joined the NRA as members, including President George H.W. Bush and President Ronald Reagan. However, Bush resigned in 1995 after CEO Wayne LaPierre, which you'll be hearing the name a lot, called federal agents jackbooted thugs after the bombing of a government building in Oklahoma. While the NRA successfully lobbied against gun regulations in the late 1980s to the early 1990s, they did face what NPR called setbacks in 1993. The Brady Bill, or officially the Brady Violence Prevention Act, established federal background checks on people that purchased a firearm and also created the new National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which didn't go live until 1998. 
In addition, the bill imposed mandatory waiting periods on handgun purchases. The bill was developed after an assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan during his presidency in 1981 and was named after press secretary Jim Brady, who was wounded during the attack. The organization was adamantly against the bill and suggests that it did not in fact prevent handgun violence. In an article released on the NRA Institute for Legislative Action website in 1997, they say, before Congress and President Clinton approved the Brady Bill in 1993, laws delaying handgun purchases imposed in 24 states were known to have no effect on crime. They then went on to quote researcher David McDowell, who they call an anti-gun researcher, who has said, waiting periods have no influence on either gun homicides or gun suicides. But despite their distaste for the bill and the Supreme Court blocking Congress from requiring states and local officials from even enforcing it in 1997, it is actually still in effect today in multiple states and has even been expanded to include all firearms, not just handguns. Only one year later, the NRA faced yet another blow to their lobbying potential with the passage of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which the Washington Post calls one of the most sweeping crime bills in US history. The bill included a 10-year ban on the manufacture, ownership, or transfer of 19 semi-automatic weapons, including the AR-15. The bill also limited legal magazine capacity to 10 bullets. When the bill was originally passed, the NRA was adamantly against it and suggested it would disarm law-abiding Americans. The ban would expire 10 years later, largely due to the NRA's involvement in lobbying Congress and defeating members who had originally voted for the bill. Despite some early failures in their lobbying efforts, the NRA would become lobbying giants in the coming years. They have become famous for their rating system of politicians in the United States Congress. The rating system is pretty simple. Basically, any politician that is against gun regulation, more often than not, Republicans would receive an A, and any politician that is for gun legislation, more often than not, the Democratic Party receives an F. There are grades in between, obviously B, C, and D, but more often than not, the grades are usually an A or an F. This grading system has become so influential that it can seriously impact polling numbers for candidates and has even helped to remove sitting members of Congress from their positions. According to the BBC, the NRA spends about $250 million per year, which is far more than all of the country's gun control advocacy groups put together. Though it is important to take note that not all of this is spent towards gun control lobbying or support through their PACs. A portion of these funds also goes to build and maintain gun ranges and in the development and maintenance of firearm educational programs for military members, law enforcement, and NRA members. The organization spends $3 million on average in lobbying. In 2019, the group spent $1.6 million to lobby legislators against laws that impose stricter background checks or those looking to purchase a firearm. Once again, an important note here is that this is only the recorded contributions that the organization spends money using their super PACs and through independent expenditures to support political campaigns. What is known is that in 2016, the group spent over $30 million in support of Donald Trump's election to the presidency. The group has clearly become increasingly influential in politics over their history, but their public commentary has also made headlines multiple times in the wake of police violence, mass shootings, and other instances of gun violence. The investigation into the high school massacre is slow moving and dangerous. The two gunmen who went on the rampage. to have died here, 12 students, one faculty member, and the two young killers. Investigators say stood in the parking lot, embraced one another, and wiped away their tears. In 1999, the deadliest mass school shooting in American history at the time took place at Columbine High School. As a side note, how fucking sad is it that I'm just saying at the time? Anyway. There were more than 20 people injured and unfortunately 13 people died. The images of the shooters, the students running from the school and the grieving families were played on loop on national television. Walk back in the school again and see empty chairs and 
It would be horrible. A little bit of pain, a little bit of everything at once. And it's deep, you know? But it's got to be strong. So parents, hug your kids. Additionally, gun control advocates came out in mass demanding stricter gun legislation after the tragedy. It was at this moment that the NRA would be faced with a decision. How do we respond? With an organization that had been arguing for fewer restrictions on firearms, this question was a turning point for the NRA in terms of their public relations strategy. In 2021, NPR released an article detailing a secret tape of the organization's discussion after this horrific incident. The recordings were over two and a half hours long and contained the deliberation between high-ranking members of the organization. During the tape, the NRA official Kanye Robinson says, "'Everything we do here has a downside. Don't let anybody kid yourself about this great macho thing going down there and showing our chest and showing how damn tough we are. We are in deep shit on this deal. And so anything we do here is going to be a matter of trying to decide the best of a whole bunch of very, very bad choices. From the perspective of the NRA, there was really no good way to respond to this event. Another man, Jim Baker, who was a lobbyist for the group can be heard saying, at that same period- Where they're gonna be burying these children, we're gonna be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall, looking at kids fondling firearms, which is gonna be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. Another official, Jim Land said, I got to tell you, we got to think this thing through because if we tuck our tail and run, we're going to be accepting responsibility for what happened out there. In response to that, a PR consultant, Tony McCreese responded by saying, that's one very good argument, Jim. On the other side, if you don't appear to be deferential in honoring the dead, you end up being a tremendous shithead who wouldn't tuck tail and run, you know? So it's a double-edged sword. So in a time of national grief in the United States, the NRA had basically two options in their eyes, speak out or don't. They also discussed the idea of starting a victim fund for people harmed in the incident to show that while they believed guns weren't responsible, they did care about these people. Like a victim's fund. Or we create a victim fund and, and we, uh, we give a victim a million dollars or something like that. Does that look bad or does it look... Uh... Well, I mean, that can be twisted too. I mean, why, why are you giving money? You feel responsible? Well, you're true, it can be twisted, but we feel sympathetic and uh, respectful. They also brought up trying to stay away from the same type of bad press they previously had, which caused them to lose Bush as a member. Remember that jackbooted government thugs comment? Yeah, they didn't want that to happen again, apparently. If you pull down the exhibit hall, that's not gonna leave anything for the media except the members meeting, and you're gonna have the wackos with all kinds of crazy, dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots and... In the end, the NRA decided on their strategy and also decided to continue with their plans to hold a conference in the coming weeks, which would end up being protested by thousands of people. It was here that the NRA president at the time, Charlton, would deliver their now longstanding stance on school shootings and other mass shooting events, which basically comes down to them saying that the media was untrustworthy and conversations about guns and the NRA after mass shootings were merely trying to politicize the issue. During the conference, he said, why us? Because their story needs a villain. They want us to play the heavy in their drama of packed grief, to provide riveting programming to run between commercials for cars and cat food. The dirty secret of this day and age is that political gain and media ratings all too often bloom on fresh graves. So just to kind of condense this and reiterate a couple things here. After a two and a half hour conversation about what they should do after the worst school shooting in America that 
Americans had seen at that time. That's the statement they came up with. Sorry for kind of losing my, my wording there a little bit. It's just almost shocking that of all the alternatives, of all the things they could have said, could have done, this is what they decided, is they wanted to play victim as well. In my opinion, if they had kept their stance from the early 1900s, they wouldn't need to play victim. It's purely because of their little takeover coup situation that happened in the 70s that they changed the stance to become much more radicalized and more political. And now they're like, ah, fuck, it shot us in the foot. I've got zero sympathy. And the fact that this narrative is still what plays out every time there's a, there's a mass violence situation is actually incredible that this is the same parroted talking point. It's old and it's outdated. You need to come up with a new one. I would suggest accountability for the laws and the loosening of laws that they've caused, but that would be much too difficult to be you know, full of integrity in a statement for once in their lives. So that won't happen. Basically though, the official statement of the NRA after horrific and tragic mass shootings is it's not our problem and the media is trying to make it our problem and blah, 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 and woe is us. It's wrong, plain and simple. The organization would continue this type of commentary on almost every school shooting and mass shooting that followed. Wayne LaPierre, the same man who had made the jackbooted thugs comment, gave a lengthy speech in Washington DC after 27 people, mostly children, were killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting in Connecticut. He started out by saying that the NRA had refrained from comment after the event out of respect for the families before continuing on to say that others had tried to exploit tragedy for political gain. And I just find it funny because he's literally the one that makes these statements and politicizes it and literally like winds up the conversation and puts it directly into the spotlight. People are like, oh my God, we need gun control. And then he's like, well, you hold on here. And no one says the NRA's name. And they're like, well, hold on a damn minute. I'm like, well, that's an interesting admission of guilt. So you do admit that you might be part of the reason why we don't actually have better gun control. Interesting, you have to stick your neck out every time and go, it's political. No, it's about human lives. It's not that fucking difficult. Well, apparently it is, but it shouldn't be. Anyway, he then says that he found it necessary to speak for the safety of our nation's children, which is ironic, before saying this. How do we protect our children right now, starting today, in a way that we know works? The only way to address that question is to face up to the truth. Politicians pass gun-free school zones. They issue press releases bragging about them. They post signs advertising them. And in so doing, they tell every insane killer in America that schools are their safest place to inflict maximum mayhem with minimum risk. Basically what he is saying here is that no gun zones are one of the reasons that mass shootings occur, particularly in schools. He goes on to attack the media for being callous, corrupt, and corrupting shadow industry that sells and sows violence against its own people. He continues with his attack on the media saying that they demonize lawful gun owners and they don't know what they're talking about. Before long, he says the most famous words from the speech. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Followed by the suggestion that Sandy Hook could have and would have been prevented by a qualified armed security. He also proposed that the NRA would create a program and train and arm the good guy to place in schools. Obviously, these views are quite controversial, but they definitely sparked near immediate public outrage from both Republican and Democrat politicians. In October, 2015, after a shooting at an Oregon college occurred, the NRA board member, Ted Nugent, released an article online that called victims of mass shootings losers. I kid you the fuck not. Here's what he said. 
anything, any law, any regulation, any directive, any decree, any dastardly claim to the contrary is pure unambiguous criminal infringement in the first degree. And I see a whole gang of criminal violators everywhere I look in our government, our courts, and in pretty much every power abusing bureaucracy out there. Meanwhile, those losers amongst us, spinelessly discarding self-evident logic, common sense, and pure human instinct continue to fall for the big lie of political correctness and get cut down by murderous maniacs like blind sheep of slot. While owning a gun for personal protection is not wrong and it's not even something I oppose, which I'm certain in the YouTube video portion, for those of you listening to the podcast, there's there's also a YouTube version. Uh, For those of you in the YouTube section comments, I'm pretty sure we're gonna see some interesting discourse in there about people saying, oh, you're just a liberal and you hate guns and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, it's, it's really not that. I'm for a lot of regulation around guns, but if you want to own a gun and you can jump through the hoops, then yeah, you should. But currently as they stand, the rules are too lax. So I'm not really against it per se. I just think there needs to be a lot more regulation in place. And in fact, it's odd that during this research, I discovered that the very early days of the NRA and their viewpoints, especially in that earlier speech that I brought up when talking to Congress in the 1920s and 30s, I was kind of in agreement and it was a little shocking that I feel that you should be able to get it, but, and there's lots of buts, but there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through and you need to be fully damn documented all the way through. However, I also respect anyone's personal opinion that doesn't want to own one. I have shotguns before. I've been to shooting ranges multiple times. I live in Colorado, for God's sake, it's a very like gun yeehaw state and that's fine. I don't really have a problem with that, but you know, I've obviously been in a situation where a lot of my friends, you know, do carry and stuff like that. And I'm really not one who's gonna be in a situation where I know people around me do have guns. And if I did ever find myself in a situation that it, the worst thing that would happen is that there would be a gun placed in front of me and I wouldn't even know how to use the damn thing. And I could put myself or other people at risk. So I've taken multiple like training courses, how to shoot them, how to unload them, different types of guns, semi-autos, rifles. Like I've, I've done it all. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. I see it more as a safety thing and I just have to deal with it. But my mom on the other hand and my sister are very, very anti-gun to the point that they won't even touch them. They don't wanna be near them. And I also get that. I just, I don't know. There's just like this weird part of me that if something were to ever happen where something got placed in front of me, if I didn't know how to use it and I could potentially hurt myself or other people, just not the thing I, I want to have over my head ever. So I digress, sorry, a little bit of opinion and personal stuff in there. But going back to that quote, saying that anyone who doesn't own a gun or doesn't know how to shoot or anything that are just losers and spineless is reprehensible language. Even more reprehensible and disgusting is the victim blaming rhetoric that calls victims of mass shootings responsible for their own deaths because they didn't own a gun, instead of calling out the people that carry out these senseless and tragic acts. It's insane to me that this was even a talking point. He again brought up the common NRA talking point that mass shootings happen because of gun-free zones, even though the college campus the shooting happened on was in fact not even a gun-free zone. He ended his article by saying that readers should join the NRA and said, disarmed and helpless is irresponsible, suicidal choice that will get you killed. Defend yourself. The NRA has also consistently spoken out in the wake of police officers killing black men and women. In 2018, an off-duty police officer, Amber Geiger, entered the apartment of Botham John and shot and killed him. 
She later claimed that she had thought she entered her own apartment. And when she saw him, she had thought her house had been broken into. This caused public outrage and ridicule in Dallas, Texas and throughout the United States. However, the NRA took this opportunity to once again push their good guys with a gun, stop bad guys with a gun idea. A spokesperson for the group, Dana Loesch, said that John would be alive if he were legally armed and had shot Officer Geiger before she shot him. He said, this could have been very different if Botham John had been, say, a law-abiding gun owner and he saw someone coming into his apartment. And I just wanna notate something here because I know there's a lot of discourse about police being bad, but when you're like a little kid, right? You're taught police officer good, at least. Let's take it back to like very, very basics here, right? So you're taught that police officer good. So theoretically, Geiger is a good guy with a gun and yet killed a good person. So it just, the fucking irony of the situation. I know a cab and everything, so I'm not gonna sit here and go, she was definitely a good police officer. No good police officer would do this. That's the reality of the situation. So kind of bullshit to be like, oh yeah, this was a good guy. Turns out not a good guy, but it's someone who's supposed to be a good guy. It's just, I don't know if I'm making my point or maybe I'm just jumping through too many hoops and not explaining. I, I know that sometimes I do that. I jump straight to the conclusion and I don't fully explain how I got there. Um, it's just ironic in a really fucked up way. Now, recently with the shooting of Amir Locke, it can most certainly be argued that this argument the NRA imposes is just plainly wrong. Amir Locke was a black man who was shot during a no-knock warrant by Minneapolis police when he was awoken at 6.45 a.m. by them entering the home. He reached for a gun laying next to him. He was unfortunately killed by police. And the thing in this situation that makes it interesting, by the way, Amir Locke is a registered gun owner exactly what the NRA claims to tout of who would stop these bad situations. Despite Amir Locke being a registered gun owner, the NRA has yet to comment on this incident as it has many times before when a registered gun owner has been killed or shot by police, which is something I find particularly interesting. Now, the NRA, despite being the National Rifle Association, has also decided to speak out against NFL players kneeling during the national anthem calling undocumented children who were separated from their parents better off and called the Women's March anti-American and said American men were being turned into second-rate women. They have also adamantly pushed the rhetoric that politicians are coming after your guns. The NRA president at the time, Charlton Heston, famously held up a rifle during a conference and said, gun control advocates and politicians would have to take the gun from my cold, dead hands in 2000. More recently, in 2021, after a mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado, the NRA made, let's just say, a very interestingly timed tweet. Just one week earlier, the NRA backed challenge to an assault rifle ban caused a Colorado judge to block the city of Boulder from enforcing the ban. The NRA immediately celebrated this as a victory for gun owners everywhere. The mass shooting sparked a discussion about gun control and a push for further legislation. However, the NRA posted a tweet only 10 hours after the shooting that included a picture of the constitution that showed the right to bear arms and stated that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. While they did not explicitly state this tweet had anything to do with the Boulder shooting, the timing and the fact that people were adamantly speaking out for regulations to be put in place certainly gives the impression that this was posted in response to the shooting and calls for legislation that followed. Over the years, the organization has consistently made comments, speeches, and statements that have caused mass controversy and public outrage. 
However, this hasn't seemed to slow them down too much. In fact, they boast that they have more than 5 million members, though there have been some arguments that they inflate their numbers and the real membership number is more like 3 million. Despite the membership rate, the NRA has run into issues with infighting and more recently multiple lawsuits that have caused turmoil for the organization. The NRA started facing financial problems in 2016. And in that year alone, they lost more than $45 million. And then in 2017, they lost another $17 million. In 2018, for the first time, they were outspent by pro-gun control groups during the 2018 midterms. Then in 2019, the organization began massive infighting between members and their longstanding PR firm, Ackerman McQueen. Ackerman had been responsible for a wide range of pro-gun campaigns for the NRA over the years. And by 2014, they were paying Ackerman nearly 40 million annually to help them draft statements, organize campaigns, and advertise them to the public. In April, 2019, the NRA sued Ackerman McQueen for allegedly having flagrantly disregarded its contractual obligations. Reportedly, there has been rising tension between Ackerman and the NRA for years, largely because of the firm's astronomical prices that have been draining the organization. They accused Ackerman of a lack of transparency in their budget and charging the NRA the entire salaries from non-NRA clients. They also said the PR firm had deviated from the NRA's core mission and values of protecting the Second Amendment rights of the United States citizens. Ackerman later released a statement saying the lawsuit was frivolous, inaccurate, and intended to cause harm to the reputation of our company. They continued on to say, we will defend our position and performance aggressively and look forward to continuing to serve the NRA's membership. The PR firm countersued the NRA and both the NRA and Ackerman were seeking over $50 million in damages. These lawsuits have yet to be settled, so we'll wait and see what happens there. Now that same month, the NRA faced what the Washington Post called a bitter internal battle when at the annual convention in Indianapolis, the NRA president, Oliver North, was forced out of the organization by CEO LaPierre after he had been pushing for an internal financial review. North was calling for an internal financial review after LaPierre had been accused of spending over $300,000 on clothing and hundreds of thousands of dollars on travel. This sparked yet another round of legal battles in 2020 for the organization. In August, 2020, the New York Attorney General sued them for fraud. In the lawsuit, several executives from the NRA were accused of draining 64 million from the nonprofit in just three years. Letitia James, New York Attorney General, called for the dissolution of the NRA and said that the CEO LaPierre and multiple others have been using the group's funds to finance the luxury lifestyle. In a statement released by James, she said, the NRA's influence has been so powerful that the organization went unchecked for decades while top executives funneled millions into their own pockets. The lawsuit also claims that LaPierre had billed the NRA more than $500,000 for private charter flights he and his family took to visit the Bahamas eight times over three years. Additionally, he had been reimbursed over a million dollars by the organization for personal trips, golf fees, and gifts. The former treasurer was also accused in the lawsuit and allegedly arranged a deal that was worth $1 million to benefit his girlfriend. Additionally, he was accused of obtaining a contract of $1.8 million to train and provide consultancy to the new treasurer, but the new treasurer said he never received any such services. Another man, the general counsel to the NRA, was accused of certifying false or misleading annual statements for the organization. Remember those astronomical fees for their PR group that I mentioned earlier? Well, the lawsuit also claims that high-ranking executives in the NRA have been rerouting millions of dollars in lavish personal expenses for themselves, their families, and allies through Ackerman McQueen. The PR firm would then allegedly bill the NRA for these expenses by calling them out-of-pocket expenses related to advertising. A lifetime NRA member responded to the lawsuit and told Forbes magazine, anything less than a clean and immediate sweep of current upper management will not cut it. Even that may not be enough. 
So many excesses over so many years without any oversight is indicative of a corrupt culture. It will be hard, if not impossible, to convince any independent authority that this can be corrected. If a plane is in a spin, sometimes there simply isn't enough air between you and the ground to recover. Others like Larry Potterfield, who founded Midway USA, has initiated programs for the NRA that have raised tens of millions of dollars for the organization, came out to defend them and LaPierre. The NRA president, Carolyn Meadows, also said in a statement that the lawsuit was a transparent attempt to score political points and attack the leading voice in opposition to the leftist agenda. This has been a power grab by a political opportunist, a desperate move that is part of a rank political vendetta. Now, clearly this lawsuit has caused some controversy among members of the NRA on whether or not to continue backing the organization of LaPierre specifically. But honestly, if the leader of an organization that I was a member of was found to be or accused of embezzling or committing fraud, I would probably want that person out. Like just in general, it's not a good look. This isn't even like personal per se. It's like, oh, hey, you were, you're being accused of embezzling or committing like mass fraud in the millions of dollars mark. Like whether or not it's true or not, you should probably like dismiss yourself or get fired or something, just back away because it doesn't look good. Now, do I believe this happened? I don't know. Allegedly, it most certainly seems like this is what happened, in which case, not surprised, just disappointed once again. Like, wow, another organization is corrupt as shit. Wow, shocking. Shannon Watts, who is the founder of Moms Demand Action, a gun control focused nonprofit said, thoughts and prayers today to the NRA, which is losing money and political power so quickly that by the end of this case, there might not be anything left to dissolve. The thoughts and prayers seem like an obvious dig at the organization and politicians who often respond to mass shootings by saying thoughts and prayers and then doing the complete opposite to enable those situations to occur again. The Attorney General of Washington, D.C. also filed a lawsuit against the NRA Foundation, that nonprofit I mentioned earlier, and accused it of being a puppet of the NRA. Now remember, the nonprofit was meant to be separate from the NRA and to provide funds for shooting ranges and training programs. However, the lawsuit accused the foundation of lending the NRA money to address its rising deficits. He was also searching for the organization to be dissolved. With the NRA facing a mountain of legal troubles, there are definitely some questions about whether or not the group will actually survive or if it will ever bounce back as being one of the most influential organizations in politics as it was in the past. The NRA has faced massive criticism for their statements and their lobbying efforts, but this is the first time that they have been threatened by this scale of legal action. So as the case continues, the question remains, what's to come for the NRA? And with that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you'd like to connect with me outside of these episodes, perhaps catch me on a live stream, make sure to click on my Linktree link. It's in the description box and it's gonna get you to all my social medias and other projects. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to today's episode. I really do appreciate your time. And again, I'll see you in the next one. Bye.